Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Eliza Mata Dalian, affectionately known as Mata. Um, the person who helped me set this up uh, sent me a little uh, biographical sketch about her. Um, she is a modern-day mystic, internationally acclaimed master healer and spiritual teacher. She's like a human x-ray machine who, with razor-sharp accuracy, is able to see through the layers of people's unconscious, read the repressed thoughts, emotions, and belief patterns in the body that cause their pain, fears, and suffering, and help transform what's unconscious in the person into consciousness. Combining this unique gift with her experience of enlightenment at age 33 and her deep wisdom and and uh, excuse me, the cat walked across her deep wisdom and compassion for human suffering. Mata devised a light speed healing system known as the Dalian method for health and consciousness. This groundbreaking self healing system helps to quickly identify and permanently erase the self sabotaging imprints from the body's cellular memory and transform fear, pain, and suffering into health and self empowered consciousness. Spiritually, the Dalian method spontaneously assists the individual in awakening their inner intelligence and discovering their inner truth, creativity, and life purpose. And uh, Mata has written a book entitled Search of, In Search of the Miraculous, Healing into Consciousness. And a lot of our discussion today will be derived from things she's talked about in that book. For instance, she has a chapter uh, towards the end of the book, which is a very fascinating account of her personal journey, um, so we're going to go into that to some extent, and then uh, discuss a number of other points that are in the book. And of course, I'll be linking to all this from BatGap.com, so people listening can find it all uh, later on. So, thanks for doing this. It's uh, really a joy to see you. I've really, I haven't read your book cover to cover because I get, you know, do an interview a week when I can't always read a book a week, but I've read quite a bit of it and really enjoyed what I've read so far. It's a keeper. Good, good, good to be with you. And uh, actually, before we start, I want to say that I love the name that you used, Buddha the Bump, uh, Gas Pump. It's, it's so perfect. Oh, thank you. <laughs> because I, it's exactly what uh, what uh, the new Buddha is is like. That's the implication. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and you know, I can't take credit for thinking up the name. A young friend of mine thought it up when I was trying to think of what to call this show. Uh, a fellow named uh, Isaac Nevis. So, all praise to Isaac. <laughs> uh, good, so you were born in Armenia, uh, as it said in the book, and you've had a number of challenging things happen to you in life, um, some jobs that were really killer jobs, so, yeah, I, I never would have survived, and some various other things, but uh, also some really marvelous uh, spiritual adventures and experiences and unfoldments, so let's discuss that. I know you've told these stories many times, and you wrote it all in the book, but um, let's go through it in as much detail as you think you know, is appropriate for this format, and I'm sure I'll have some questions and, and uh, you know, comments perhaps uh, as you go along. So, um, well, you know, the, the first thing is to, of course, talk about the beginning of life, and the beginning of life is very, very significant and important for all of us because it creates the imprint to how our perception of the world is going to be like. And beginning from from the very beginning, my my experience coming into the world was not a very pleasant one in the sense that I, I went back in my memory and remembered when I was after I was born and uh, remembered how I was put in a crib with many other children who were crying 
and the lights, the neon lights shining on the whole night and day and feeling like I needed to sleep and the lights were not allowing me. And so the conclusion I made about humans that obviously the adults um, that they don't understand, they're not sensitive and they have no clue what they're doing mm. because we're all here and they have, they're not connecting with, with our needs. So that was sort of like the beginning of life. Um, and if I go back to just prior to birth, that was another significant moment, which is Buddha says that is the most traumatic experience of our life. Getting born. Getting born, the process of birth. Mm. And uh, I remember being in my mother's womb and feeling like I'm being pushed out. And in that time of you know, very important time where you're being pushed out and you have to obviously be born. I was resisting because obviously womb is such a beautiful place. It's, you don't have to do anything. It's like paradise. And then I, I, I realized that I have no choice. I have, it's, 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 it's not up to me. What if you're born and, by cesarean? Does it make a difference in terms of that trauma? I think it would definitely make a difference. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, in a way, that's a diff completely different story, mm. because then you're not, you don't have any choice, right? At all. Yeah. But but in the case of being born, you can either continue resisting, or in my case, I thought, okay, well, I understand that I cannot continue resisting because it's against I can it's it's against my own will. Mm. Whatever's happening, I cannot control, so I might as well surrender. And what helped me to surrender is remembering the earth. I felt like I knew this place before. I was here before. And it's a beautiful place. And I remembered the trees and the sun and the blue sky. And I thought, okay, it's not so bad. I can come back, come back into it. Mm -hmm. So that was, I, I was born in a state of surrender in mm -hmm. a way. And that's been pretty much my whole life has been surrendering. And in a way, when I look back, there's that initial resistance, of course, which comes from the ego, and and then you realize, well, this is the ego, and then you you surrender, and and that for me it happens very quickly. Um, of course, that also helped me on my journey to 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 experience the thing we call enlightenment. So coming back into the process of birth, I don't know if I'm taking too long to describe. Take, take as much time as you like. It's fine. But um, I think it's important for people to understand this. Sure, yeah. And of course, once we're born, then the first impression, other than you know coming into the world and seeing how the world welcomes you, um, then it's the family. Of course, this is where we learn all our conditionings, the imprints, and, and we make conclusion and our belief system starts being cultivated at a very young age. And my impression of my parents and people around was same as that what I ha had in in uh, in the hospital when I felt people are so they don't know what they're doing, and I could I could sense that nobody's going to really understand me until I was about five five <clears throat> years old. And I had an experience where my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, 
died of cancer and I saw him die. And in that commotion where my mother and my aunt were trying to help him and he was on morphine for a long time and he basically couldn't handle the pain any longer. So he went for the bottle and he started drinking from the bottle uh, and they were hectic. They didn't know what to do, but he, he just knew what he wanted. It was enough suffering. So And he very quickly went. He died very quickly. And my first, the, the immediate reaction was fear. Mm. And because somebody was moving and suddenly he's not moving any longer. And then I remember sleeping at night um, in, in the next room and my mother and I were visiting my, my grandfather's uh, house. So we were there. And I, I, I started thinking, what will happen to a person who is dying? And I, and I sort of looked at my own mortality and I thought, I'm going to die one day as well. And then who am I? Where am I going to go when I die? And what is my purpose here? Those were very, very important questions. This is and, when you were five years old. Five years old. That's great because most people go through their whole lives without asking those questions. You know, you were asking them at five. Exactly. But again, you know, what we bring into this life also matters. I've right. been on this planet for too many, too many lifetimes. So I guess I've learned many lessons in those lifetimes to be able to start asking that early on. Sure. And... Um, so that was very significant and very profound because there was a sense of disidentification mm. from the ego, disidentification from, from the attachments to life. And that's the main challenge of any spiritual seeker, mm -hmm. to disidentify with, with life and our attachments. Right. So after that, um, I had another significant experience at the age seven where my parents... Uh, were divorced and I was um, I was put in a room with my grandma because she came she came to take care of me and at that time I was really puzzled with her she, every night before going to sleep she would sit in her bed and start praying and she would just you know mumble things which <laughs> to me just whispering something and, and I thought, this is really strange. What is she talking about? What is she praying to? So one day I challenged her and I, th I said, there is no God, because I felt like she's praying to God. And I said, there is no God. If there is God, show him to me. And, and I was very feisty with her and was running around. She finally grabbed a hold of me and she said, looking into my eyes, she said, God is within you. Mm. God is within every human being, every animal, tree. God is everywhere around you. You had a wise grandmother. She was very wise. And that, for a young child, children know. That's my experience. Children know the truth. And for me, it was like, yep, she's telling me the truth, so I'm going to leave you alone. Mm. <laughs> and, and then I, I loved the time I spent with my grandmother. It was very nourishing, very... Uh, uh, very pleasant in the sense that it was a state of complete acceptance. You know, grand grandparents are more in that state than our parents. Mm. And, and she was completely present. So I experienced presence. I experienced acceptance. I experienced unconditional love with my grandmother. 
And that was very important because later on, my life didn't turn out so pleasant because my father remarried and my stepmother was a very angry woman. So, so my life became a little harder. Mm. And sort of like a, when, I, when I look at the Cinderella story. I was just I thinking like Cinderella. A... <laughs> <laughs> so it was like that. I had to, I had to uh, help with the, with the household chores. Um, you know, when I was nine, I had to do some shopping for the family, you know, do the washing. So I didn't have childhood. I basically was, and I, and my intelligence knew that my survival is depending on these people and I can't take care of myself. I can't just walk out. So I have to do what they tell me. And every child knows that. Mm -hmm. And every child learns to compromise. And this is how because of children's intelligence, they also learn how to lie. They, they learn how to manipulate. So we all do that because we have to learn to survive. Yeah. So, so in my case, because of the, my experience with my grandmother and my grandfather, there was no need for me to manipulate or to lie, but I knew I had to do what they asked me to do because I can't take care of myself. So after that when I was 16, I, I rebelled like every teenager rebels. And at that point, my mother um, kept asking me to go live with her. So I did. I decided I've had enough of this, uh, you know, and, and my stepmother was very, very abusive as well, physically mm -hmm. and mentally. So that was the freedom that was like, now the world is my oyster, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and of course, uh, I, I always had a very keen interest in education and that was something my grandmother instilled in me as well she said uh, no matter what happens in love education is the most important thing so do whatever you can in school you know study well university so and she used to tell me also about languages she said learn as many languages as you can because every language you learn you, you you become more as a human. How many so, did you learn? Well, at the time, my mother tongue was Armenian, mm -hmm. and um, I went to Russian school because at the time my father asked me. That's the only thing he he honored mm -hmm. when I uh, when he asked me which school do you want to go to. And I was born in Armenia, which was part of USSR, right. and there was a choice of Armenian school or Russian school. And I said I'd like to go to Russian school. So, so I went Russian. to Russian school, so I learned the Russian, and uh, those were the two languages basically used there. And when I moved, immigrated to Canada, uh, I was in Montreal, so I started learning French. Mm. And of course, um, English I started learning when I, my first um, university I went to was, was languages, so I uh, was going to be an English language teacher. And... Uh, Though it did not really, I loved teaching, but uh, there was uh, my artistic side wanted something more. So then I, I went and started architecture, mm -hmm. and um, and my mind, which is very I like scientific exploration. Initially, I wanted to study cybernetics, but it, <laughs> I, I didn't because I'm immigrated to Canada, and so. What, what is cybernetics? Well, it's it's more. I think the, the the science, mathematics, physics, 
you know, and the science of how things work. Oh, okay. So, and I would, if I had the choice now, I would definitely follow quantum physics because mm, that's sure. what comes closest to, to truth. Yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, because everything really spiritually, if you look at, once we have that spiritual experience, it's exactly the same as what quantum physics comes to start to explain mm -hmm. scientifically. So, when I immigrated to Canada, I was 24, and I came with an attitude that unless something is very clearly presented to me that makes sense to my intelligence, I'm not going to buy anything. Basically, it's, okay, you have to appeal to my intelligence, just like with my grandmother. She appealed to my intelligence. She told me, to, she told me the truth. So when I, when I moved here, I met this uh, a Russian woman who was, um, uh, he, she was part of the Second World War, and uh, after Germans retreated, she was taken with them and then uh, eventually immigrated to Canada. So I met her, and she gave me this book to read by Petey Guspensky, In Search of the Miraculous. Mm -hmm. And when I read the book, and I read about the teachings of Gurdjieff, I was so excited because I felt like, finally, I have some, some kind of guidance because all my life I had no guidance whatsoever. I had to figure out things by myself. My father was busy with my stepmother and his work. Uh, my stepmother was busy with her issues. So basically, I had to figure out everything on my own. And this one, again, appealed to me in a sense that, yes, I want to explore. Now I'm excited. And soon after, she gave me a, another book by, um, oh, yeah, I read books on life after death. So, you know, it kind of doubled whatever library she had, I was, I was borrowing and reading. And then she gave me a book by Osho, and that was called Beware of Socialism. Huh. And of course, coming from a socialist or communist country, I was curious to to why I know that you know communism is just a it's just an idea because I don't see it's really happening even right. though I lived in that country. So um, that totally blew my mind because everything he said about socialism and capitalism and and the differences and how true communism can only come out of the very rich country such as America that that was you know those were new ideas but at the same time it made sense to me because when people don't have enough how can they share how can they live in that communal way without really feeling that oh I need more for myself right because the, the true communism the idea of communism which came from Karl Marx, is that life is for everyone and we share it in a way. It's, it's, a, it's a more, I would say socially, the idea of communism is, is in a way the idea of when you realize that I'm not separate. Yeah, so it's nice in principle, but if people are living in a state of lack, then it's not going to happen, both spiritually and materially. If they're in a state of emptiness or insufficiency, then there's never going to be that overflowing that would actually make such a, an ideal practicable. Exactly. Yeah. So anyways, to make the story short, I started meditating with his active meditations and, of course, um, went to visit him as well. And that was 
the beginning of my internal search. And um, as I described in the book, when I was on my search and meditating and in that community that Osho created, again, I felt like I belonged, but I didn't belong at the same time. How so? Well, I belonged in a sense that there was an enlightened mystic who was sharing the truth that I resonated with, Uh that, that I absolutely feel within myself. Every word I read wakes up the same the intelligence within me and I go, Oh my goodness, it's true. How come I never thought of this? But it just appeals to your inner intelligence. And in that sense I felt absolutely belong I belonged because it's the energy field that an enlightened master creates that helps that um, personal search easier. And and take my going deeper areas into more unconscious areas and in in another sense i didn't belong because i felt that people who were there they still had their social conditionings they still had their issues of control they still had their issues of insecurity the egos were there battling (laughs) yeah i I had to chuckle when i read that part of your book Uh, you, you kind of broke it down in terms of power hungry administrators blind followers and free thinkers, you know, and I've experienced a couple of different spiritual movements close hand, and it's such a, I think you were spot on in terms of that analysis, it's just human mentality is such that people kind of sort themselves out into those rough uh, categories, and there's always a similar dynamic going on, (laughs) you know, there's different types. Absolutely, because we're human. Yeah, yeah. And we bring our human nature, and everybody comes from a certain state of development that they bring into that that, that um, relationship communally. So obviously, some are younger spirits; they're still learning, and they have their own issues. And not every what I what I also discovered was that not everybody is really seriously interested about enlightenment or, or awakening. Right. People say they do, they gravitate to groups like that, but they gravitate because they feel good and they need a sense of belonging to a group. They're really interested to wake up. It might also be fair to say that, um, you know, different groups as a as a whole, have different degrees of spiritual maturity. For instance, you might say Jonestown was a very immature kind of scene, whereas others are, are much more spiritually mature, and you're not going to find the sort of egregious examples of abuse and, and whatnot, at least not to the same degree that you would find in the more immature ones. So it wouldn't be fair to lump them all in, into one big basket. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And in this case, at least with with the community that Osho created, there was the sense of individuality. Mm-hmm. So that, that was fostered and encouraged. Absolutely, absolutely, that was his main thing. You need mm-hmm. to find your individuality because unless you find it, you're not going to be willing to let go of your ego. Right. Yeah, I like that point. Maybe we'll we'll after a little bit we'll kind of dwell on it more specifically. But the whole point of making the ego stronger and more healthy, as opposed to just from the start, chopping it down, you know? I think that's a very important point. I, we could dwell on it even now, if you like, and then kind of loop back to the story, or else we can pick it up a little bit later on. Uh, sure. Uh, I think I can probably tie the two together, absolutely. Yeah. With- uh, go ahead. Let's elaborate on that, then. So, in my case, um, I feel that I've always had a healthy ego, in a sense that I didn't have internal insecurities. I felt that 
I'm capable of doing whatever I want to do. And this was also, of course, from my past life training. I've been with masters for many lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And I, I described that in the book. You probably read that. that I did, second. yeah. Uh -huh. with, and including the Buddha. Right. And so I come with some maturity. Uh, so I didn't have the insecurities that normally the ego the, the wounded ego carries. And it's a, for the sake of those who might be skeptical about that claim, um, I guess what you're saying is you've had kind of clear inner visions or intuitive kind of uh, realizations of those lifetimes with those masters, right? That's how you know that you have been. I had the memory, yes. The memories. Mem Pretty mem vivid? Yes. Yeah, okay. Memories c came up, and the memories come up with also why do we need to remember past lives is in order to see the patterns that we're repeating this lifetime. Mm -hmm. And for what I saw, the pattern that I was repeating, basically, um, in the case when I was uh, with the Buddha, I went to Buddha because I wanted to, to learn more about spirituality, but coming from a a background where I was a rich person and I had everything and all the comforts, you come to uh, a teacher who says, here's the begging bowl, you have to go and beg for your food. Right. It was very uncomfortable for me, even though everything the Buddha talked about was absolutely uh, resonated as truth. Yeah. So what I struggled with, why do I have to use the begging bowl and go beg for food? <laughs> you know, right. I work for it and, and, use my own labor probably I had some other you know um, issues about that too so then I left the Buddha and I went to to um, become a fisherman so I lived a very simple life fishing and taking care of myself and enjoying the nature I was in and when the Buddha died and the, the news reached me I was so devastated and I remember in that moment I, I experienced that moment and and realized that I missed the most important thing in life because all this beauty, the, the worldly beauty was nothing compared to the beauty of, of an enlightened man like a Buddha. Mm. And, and I was so deeply distraught that in that, in that moment I experienced hearing Buddha's voice saying, Cherveti, Cherveti, go on, go on. It's uh -huh. not this to shall pass, so go on with your search. And that compassion the Buddhist compassion is so profound and in that compa compassion is what heals yeah so in that in that moment very deep deep sorrow and feeling his compassion at the same time I felt that that's right this is not the end yeah that's a very to me that's a very comforting thought if you if you can take the long view you know that our life is not confined by 80 times around the sun or whatever. It's a, it's a long process. Uh, then you can, you know, it doesn't make you lackadaisical, but on the other hand, it makes you patient and uh, accepting of things as they present themselves. You know, this too shall pass. You know, there's a, there's a kind of a, a tolerance that develops when you, when you can take that view. Yes. Yeah. Incidentally, on the past lives thing, it's, you know, a number of spiritual masters says, say, well, you shouldn't dwell on them or try to remember them or anything else. But then Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra says there's a time when you're going to remember them. In your, yeah. Because to, to me, from my experience, remembering past life, you need to remember, you need to see the patterns you're repeating. Mm -hmm. so in this case, when I found Osho and I found that same quality of compassion, 
because I remember the first time I went and sat in, in assembly for, for three days in a row, I just cried for two hours just, just looking at him, and he was saying nothing. <laughs> he just looked at you, and, and started crying, and I wouldn't stop crying. And it was, I could feel that I've come home, but there was that sense of compassion again that really helped to heal something. And, and then I was really, one thing really, really bothered me the whole time I was with Osho was that I have to be next to him. I have to, I cannot leave. I have to absolutely be there because I cannot miss his death. And I was, I was really puzzled. Why am I really so attached to having to be there when he dies? Remembering after he died, as a matter of fact, and I was there, I was right next, you know, to in the burning gas where you know, they were burning his body and I was there throughout the whole time afterwards I had that experience of remembering my life with the Buddha this is interesting mm-hmm. and I understood why I was so attached to having to be there when, when Osho dies because I had experienced a different situation with the Buddha where I was devastated and I cried and I was <laughs> in that state of um realizing that I missed right regret most important thing so this way once we remember something inside us once we see the pattern something inside us relaxes and it goes aha now I understand why I was so attached yeah that's good and in fact you tell the story in your book where um, you had committed suicide in one life when you were living at a Tibetan monastery and then your mangled body, I guess, was brought up from the bottom of the cliff you had jumped off, and, and the, the master there told some disciple to kind of take care, bring you back, I think you said. And that and you realized that that disciple that was told that was Osho, actually. So, yes. Yeah, that was interesting. That's, that's, that, it is, and how we all, you know, everything, nothing really ends, nothing finishes, everything is a continuation. Yeah. Lifetime is not enough to learn everything we need to learn. It would be very scary and depressing if we didn't think that, in my opinion. I mean, I've thought that for so long that I'm used to it, but it seems to me that if you really thought that your existence was going to just totally end in a couple of decades or something, it would be terrifying. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. You wouldn't have any chance to make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. Right, and it also would say some kind of um, not so complimentary things about God, you know, if that's the way God's running the universe, and what kind of a guy is he? Yes. <laughs> uh, so we were kind of dwelling on the point of developing the ego and strengthening it. Um, in fact, there was a nice quote you said. You said, you can't make enlightenment happen, but you can prepare the vehicle. That's right. I like that. That's right, because that's the only thing we can do. It's in our, in our power. Mm-hmm. Enlightenment a gift from 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 the universe and it happens when when uh, when i say we're ready it happens when we're ready but what is that readiness the readiness is we need to see the ego we need to understand the ego and we need to be willing to die in other words what is willing to die it's that intelligence inside you that understands uh, the fear coming from the ego even though Initially, it's an intellectual understanding, 
that the fear is from the ego and I, I, I will not die, I will continue. I hear all these stories and there's life after death, but it's all intellectual. It's conceptual, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, to actually experience that fear in the body and to transcend it, it mm-hmm. prepares you, that makes you worthy yeah. of being the gift. And would, um, would you agree that meditation, um, if it's deep, is a sort of a mini-death because you do transcend the ego? And, you, and if you do that thousands of times over the course of many years of practice, then you get very accustomed to just, um, you know, transcending the ego. And, and, you know, it's, and so you begin to, like, it really sort of de- defangs death. Meditation is absolutely the key. Yeah. Because what meditation does, the way meditation prepares you is gives you an opportunity to experience the inner emptiness mm-hmm. and to start making friends with that inner emptiness and ro- not run away from it. And most people, all problems exist because people run away from their inner emptiness, which is their being. So if you run away from your being, how are you going to really find that eternal you? that never dies it's the being that never dies it's that emptiness that never dies and within it is the consciousness so meditation helps you to prepares you to make friends with that with emptiness and not only that once you sit and go deeper into emptiness something starts expanding suddenly the the limitations of the body start disappearing and in that expansion suddenly you move into the unknown and this is this is how you surrender into the unknown and you become one. This is enlightenment, surrendering into that unknown mm-hmm. and, and merging with it. And there is no longer any I that that comes with it. So, yes, absolutely. Without meditation, it will be almost impossible to to come to that place or or, or a place of recognition that I'm not my body. I'm not my pain. I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my emotions. I'm this inner emptiness, this is my being. Why do you think it is that people run away from that inner emptiness, like you just said? Oh, there's so many reasons. Fear is number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fear, yeah, I, there's a saying in the Upanishads, which I don't remember the Sanskrit, but it goes, uh, certainly all fear is born of duality. And um, do you think that there's kind of a, a root fear that happens or that that resides at some point that kind of keeps us in duality and and people are afraid to confront that and that's why they run away from it the emptiness yes the root of all the fears is the fear of death in death everything's going to disappear into nothingness into emptiness or so you think or maybe it will i mean you know it will it will. So somewhere the intelligence knows this is what's going to happen. Um, but people who have these NDEs, you know, these near-death experiences, they describe it as being a wonderful fullness and a great you know, experience rather than any kind of empty. And emptiness has a negative connotation, you know? Uh, yes, but if we really look at the, the, the truth, the whole universe is existing within the emptiness. So whatever we see as a materialized form is only a part of that emptiness in the form, but the form sooner or later disappears. And what what um, the, the energy within the form goes back into that same emptiness. And, and one thing I'd like to say about near-death experiences, which I also had one, 
and um, the realization that that I'm still here, I'm still present, going through the tunnel, and and blissful and I don't need to be afraid of anything yes that realization is there but it's still not the step of enlightenment because enlightenment means understanding that even I am here I am a presence needs to go because thinking I'm I'm eternal I'm here and even my body is dead I'm not dead right Still, there is there is um, there's something still lacking of me knowing that I'm not the I. You see, so there's another step past that. Yeah, I see what you mean. Right. So so um, the, most people when they have these NDEs, even though they're free of the body, there's still a kind of a localized entity that's having the experience, and they don't necessarily realize or cognize their universal nature. It's more like, oh, here, look at me. I'm looking down on my body. I can hear what the doctors are saying down the hall, things like that. But they're still kind of, they may be more abstract, but they're still individuated. That's right. That's right. I see. That's right. So so until that the person starts recognizing the I mm-hmm. and still part of the ego, then the, the absolute complete surrender into the universe is impossible. And why do we need to come to that ultimate surrender to the universe? Is because then you're all inclusive. You you're realize that you are not separate from anything or anyone. Right. And, and you realize the I was simply keeping you in that state of um, still connected to your individuality. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Although I tell you, by having read a few, a number of these NDEs, it, it can definitely be a kick in the pants in terms of, um, you know, loosening up the the cons, the confines or the constraints that ordinarily, um, you know, bind people. They, it, it can be a real life changer for many people. Absolutely. They're, that's why they're very important. And each person who experiences that, obviously, in their own way. Uh, then comes back to share it and this is what it's all about education our life on the planet is education yeah. so had experiences they share the experience, their experiences to educate help others to realize oh well life is not just all you know doom and gloom and there's <laughs> that I can I can look for and I can strive for and I can experience yeah, but again, there are better ways than cancer and heart attacks and getting struck by lightning to have that realization. Obviously, meditation is a very effective way that you know doesn't nearly kill us when we practice it. <laughs> you know, my experience is people don't like to work at it. They don't like to have. They don't have the discipline. You mean to uh, do it? Discipline. They don't because as a society, especially the Western culture, we're so trained collectively to to get our problems fixed by somebody else. Mm, yeah. But in your case, of course, I mean, you never had a problem doing it, did you? You, you were drawn to it like a duck to water, and you really enjoyed it. Yeah, but you have to keep, keep on that background. Uh, I was used to doing things for myself. Mm-hmm. And in a way, my spirit chose to come to the family that I came to so that nobody interferes with my journey so that I can decide what I want to do. Mm. So I'm very, even, even in Osho's community, I had to do my own thing. And many right. times I was called a troublemaker because 
I wouldn't fit in to what I was told. I had to do my own thing. Yeah. So, so that's sort of um, yeah, plus coming from from the socialist communist sort of background country where religion wasn't really um, imposed. Um, but coming into the West, I see that the West is very much and and normally people are very much wanting somebody else to take care of them and do the work. Mm-hmm. So people don't like to do the dirty work. They just want somebody else to come and do it for them. And that's why they don't have the experiences and the, 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 the strengthening of the spirit does not happen because you need to become a warrior in order to, to face those things like fear and, and uh, insecurity and, and uh, you know, be able to see that I am the master of my life. Otherwise, everybody else is the master, and I'm a poor victim who is not being loved and, you know, being criticized and being rejected. And, and then people thrive on that because feeling a vic- like a victim is also like a drug. Yeah. When somebody feeling like a victim, they need that drug. They need the attention from others. So it's like a, no wonder we have all the vampire movies so, and people are so attracted to them. Because we live in a, in a society which is which is pretty much um, living in that v- v- vampire state, everybody's wanting attention from from everybody else, and very few are there who are willing to to give mm-hmm. attention. Or if they're giving it, it's in it's a negative attention in a sense. It it uh, it uh, feeds that insecurity and feeds that need. Um, within a person my way is very different I don't like to feed people's needs I'd like to transform <laughs> you know I, I'd like to transform their insecurities and their wounded ego it's interesting to see what happens to some celebrities when they get a super abundance of attention but they don't have the kind of inner strength and maturity to handle it they, and then they, they go off the rails you know they're, they're all kinds of crazy problems um, just because, and, and that kind of is an illustration that attention isn't going to do it for you necessarily. That's yeah. right. Um, let's uh, loop back to the Osho community for a bit. Um, you, uh, I thought you, in a very kind of honest and mature way, you brought up a lot of the um, observations of the Osho community that people like myself had from the outside and you know cleared up a lot of doubts i thought um you know like it wasn't necessarily <laughs> this big sex orgy going on and you know and um even the rolls royce thing i've i've interviewed about i don't know half a dozen people who were in that community and had some pretty good explanations about the rolls royces i mean even one person even said uh well you know it was people would donate these things and then he'd ride around in them a bit and then be able to sell them and it would you know for a, even more than retail value and it would help to support the community help to support the ashram um so that you know i can live with that um were there any other things that you think that you know people might be thinking about Osho if they were, you know, had an outsider's perspective that you'd like to address? Well, I think any person such as Osho, any awakened person who, one thing that puts Osho apart, all the other awakened people that I know, is his ability to be gutsy and do his thing. Do his thing. Yes. And 
that's that's the role that's the actually um illustration of a very important mystic such as the buddha who shakes the foundation of the old because unless we shake the foundation we cannot build anything Um, unless we destroy the rotten foundation we cannot build anything and he was disliked very much because people wouldn't understand the conditionings that they were slave to and this is this is the difficulty when 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 a master like that comes into into the world that he shakes your foundation and unless he, he challenges your intelligence and unless you're really really sincere in wanting to wake up you don't see these things and obviously the criticism is inevitable and this and media we know media thrives on stories right. and media thrives on creating stories right and controversies and whatnot whether they're true or not that's not the point mm-hmm. and and now we're seeing that in that time in the 80s it was less obvious yeah because of youtube because of internet it's more obvious how things are manipulated how politics manipulated how people are manipulated because there's more and more people are speaking out but in those days there was i think he was a single person against that big collective unconsciousness that was speaking and it started in india of course with the whole sex issue and when when somebody says well you're all repressed which is the truth right indian community is very sexually repressed mm-hmm. and so he speaks to to a crowd of 100,000 people and telling them that that they were repressed and what is sex? It's the first chakra. It's the life force where where your life force is sitting. And if that that chakra is repressed, if your life force is repressed, forget about enlightenment. Hmm. How is the energy going to go up to your you know third eye or a crown and ultimately open up like a lotus flower to the universe if 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 you have a lid on your own energy? So that's what. Create the con- created the controversy because of that repression. If sex was not repressed, the cultures that are not sexually repressed embraced the idea. Yeah, although I mean, in the West, we've since the '60s had a you know sexual revolution, and and you you could you could hardly call many people in the West repressed. They, in in a, in, a, in a sense, they they've gone to the other extreme, uh, but that doesn't seem to have been conducive to enlightenment either. So there mu- you, there must be some kind of middle ground or happy medium or something. Yes, um, but we need to understand first of all the roots of social, sexual repression. They all come back to religion. They all come back to religious organizations. Right. Because um, a child learns from from his parents, her parents, that sex is taboo. And when you see, I remember with myself, you you see um, a couple kissing. Well, you you look the other way. You're not allowed to look to. To look at it, you know. Yeah. Children have that that conditioning. Even in yes, in the West, it's now breaking down. It has been breaking down, but still, religion will not allow it for to be completely broken down. If you know, if we look at the conditionings that come from religious leaders, the Pope and you know Christianity, for example, it's still 
you know, contraceptives are not allowed, um, abortions are not allowed. So, so people's freedom is taken away to decide how they want to live their life. So these things are still prematurely, uh, prominently there, especially amongst young people as well. Hmm. So, so the people that you speak of are very few in between. People who realize and understand that I need to transcend, I need to explore, first of all, in order to transcend. Hmm. So, so in, in summary then, you know, Osho's community wasn't some kind of big orgy going on, but it wasn't, uh, you know, a, um, a repressive, um, stifling kind of atmosphere either. There was some kind of normalcy, some sort of balance, the uh, naturalness that had been um, achieved there. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it, you had complete freedom, complete mm-hmm. sexual freedom, and. What I experienced with with myself, and I was young when I went there, and most people were young, and still young people get attracted to Osho for some reason, is that I was uh, when when we're young we open we're open to explore our sexuality, but then as I explored my sexuality, I also realized the conditionings. Even though I grew up in um, in a communist country, my parents came from the West. So they still had their sexual inhibitions, the, the conditionings about sexuality. And I realized that those, even though I didn't think they were in my body, those conditionings were in my body that had passed on from my parents. Huh. I had to, I, and I saw that they were, coming, they were even deeper, even from my previous lifetimes, being in the Christian um, environment and being in, and there's many people including myself, who have been, uh, you know, um, following the Christian faith. I remember some past lives in that uh, religion as well, which I hadn't written in the book, but also remembering how I had to break out because what what is taught there is about the heart, but you cannot, the energy cannot come to your heart if you repress your sexuality. And when you repress your sexuality, as we see now, it becomes a perversion. And there's so many cases of child sexual abuse within the clergy. And why is that happening? Because you cannot repress something that is natural. And this is what Osho was trying to say to people, that if you want to heal as a nation, if you want to heal your pain, if you want to heal and really enjoy and live and celebrate life, which is our birthright, you have to break through those conditionings. You have to see the root, where they come from. And of course, institutions, the status quo is never for the individual. Right. That's well, institutions. Was Osho himself sexually active or was he kind of beyond that? There was a, uh, there was a, uh, a time when... Uh, this was in Oregon, he had a press conference that he invited many people. And this is when he came out of his silence. And there was a question, what about your sexuality? Are you sexually, you know, um, can, you, can you talk about your sexuality? And uh, what, what he said was really interesting and, and made me think. He said, um, when Buddha was asked the same question, his, his answer to that question was, that question is like my closed fist. 
I don't understand the answer. Let's continue. Okay. Fist. In other words, he didn't want to talk about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Osho said, that was Buddha's answer, but my answer is, my fist is open. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that, yes, I've been sexually active, but in the past few months, I've been, or, or uh, my body hasn't been strong enough, so I could not really perform. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore, and he made a joke out of that. Mm -hmm. When... When you look at an, an awakened person, doesn't mean sex stops. You're still living in the physical body. Right. And I can say from my own experience, if my body does not, there's there's a point that comes. You are indifferent about it. And this is what happened to many Osho disciples when they went into it full-heartedly, experienced it full-heartedly and understood what they need to understand and break through some of the conditionings they had to break through, such as myself, then you come to a point of neutrality about it. Mm. If it's there, it's happening, you enjoy it. If it's not there, you don't think about it, you don't crave it, you don't dwell on it. So you're free of the, that um, instinct that the body is generating because it's a natural instinct. And, and when the body is young, obviously, what is sex? There's another um, beautiful man, a teacher, who uh, passed away, I think, um, some years ago, Barry Long. He talks, you probably heard of Barry Long. He talks about, have you? I, I, don't I, know. I, I do. I'm not familiar with him, but I've heard his name, yeah. Australian teacher. Australian? Yes. And... Um, he talks about sex very beautifully, and he says it's it's a it's a sex helps to rejuvenate energy, to move energy through the body, and helps to uh, helps you to dissolve the ego at least temporarily, hmm. because in that union, in that um, act of sexuality, your ego disappears. You you suddenly. Are, are are experiencing something that allows your whole body to move, your energy to move through your whole body. And as the energy moves, then you come to see things because energy is understanding. Once the energy starts moving and once you experience the full body organs, which not so many people come to experience, then you suddenly have a moment of dropping absolute dropping of the ego and melting with the universe so sex has been also a very profound teaching in the form of tantra in tibet right so to make sex dirty as as christian religion has done is very damaging for a possibility of human flowering because even the um, From Sex to Superconsciousness, Osho has a book called From Sex to Superconsciousness, to demonstrate that it's something that is given by the existence, by God, and we cannot deny what's given by God and then expect to meet God face to face and say, Thy will be done. Huh. Interesting. Of course, there are some f um, factions of Eastern spirituality which you know, say, well, it's not... It's not rejuvenating; it's draining. And if you if you conserve that energy, then it go it gets converted to ojas and goes up through the shashumna and all that business. So I don't know; I'm no expert, but there are, there seem to be these conflicting schools of thought, you know, out there. 
Well, th that's in yoga, they do that as well. Maybe that's a yoga tradition, yeah. Tradition. And yes, you can. You, I'm sorry, your voice cut out there. You can what, did you say? Will yourself. Will. Right. Through will, you, mm -hmm. can, you can do those things because yoga is very much, um, very much a tradition of cultivating that will. Through will, you can do anything. You can, you can be buried on the ground and, and be there for, for you know, days. Yoga, yoga knows how to do those things. But is it, is it natural? Is it how existence made us? Is it only to create life that um, sex is all about? I mean, there's so much um, openness about sex now than it was yeah. 20 when uh, or, or 30 years ago when Osho actually started bringing those concepts out I think another consideration is you know what a person is suited for because there obviously have been examples of great sages and, and mystics and, and so on who lived celibate lifestyles and and that did not appear to be an impediment to their enlightenment they became highly realized but um, you know what percentage of humanity is qualified to do that you know must be very very small so you, you can't emulate those people necessarily you have to be true to yourself right it's absolutely um, it's a matter of choice definitely but yeah. my, in my view mm -hmm. life provides me with opportunities to experience whatever it provides me to experience I am going to experience it I'm not going to cut myself off from experiencing anything because only through experience is how I become a knower couldn't, couldn't somebody misinterpret that though and become hedonistic? You know, some, somebody's offering me this marijuana. I think I'll experience that. And oh, here, here's a whiskey. I think I'll experience that. You know, you can kind of experience all kinds of things that might actually degrade your consciousness or intelligence. Not well. If if your goal is to wake up, and if your focus is I'm going to experience, and I'm going to watch what my experience is going to teach me. If that's your attitude, then absolutely not. You can. Uh, I, when I was in my thirties, um, I was given a, a marijuana to try. People invited me to a party. I tried. Nothing happened to me because my meditation has been deeper than what the, that that plant can offer me. I see. See, yeah. so if my meditation is supersedes that quality of the plant and why was that plant put on this planet in order to give people an experience that something something divine is there that something more to life than what you think life is all about so everything on the planet is there to give people an experience that there's something more to life than what you think yeah, well, good point. In fact, Ayurveda says that every single plant and, and substance is, is a medicine for somebody, you know, even if it's poisonous or whatever. And for most people, there might be a specific purpose for that thing that would be beneficial exactly. to, to somebody. Or the natives, they use mushrooms and, you know, they have, and, and in, in tradition, traditional sort of native culture, when you go on a vision quest and you use the mushrooms, you just use them for the experience. Right. But if you get hooked on it, that's a different story. If you get addicted to something, that's a different story. That means that your awareness is not strong enough. Your resolve about your self-discovery is not strong enough. You're more uh, searching the experience now. And this is the difficulty. The, and, and why are you searching the experience? 
this is where the person needs to start looking at what is the experience helping you to forget? What, what is the pain inside you? What is the insecurity that this experience is helping you to forget? That's why people get addicted to drugs because yeah. they're trying to forget something. Huh, interesting. So, yeah, you know, I had this when I was 17, I did drugs for about a year, and uh, I, I kind of was telling myself that I was using them to explore and open up to deeper awareness and so on and so forth. But, but I kind of progressively deteriorated and <laughs> until after about a year I was paranoid and I dropped out of high school and I was all foggy and confused. And I just sat down one night and I thought to myself, you know, if you think this is some kind of spiritual quest that you're doing here, you're, you're, you're kidding yourself and you better turn it around. And so I learned meditation and turned it around and all. But um, I guess the principle we're, we're discussing here is that one man's meat is another man's poison, and, and we, you know, anything has its purpose, but anything can also be uh, used in excess and abused and, and can become, uh, you know, a weakening influence rather than an opening influence. It, it can, but then in your case, you had to do it for as long as you did in order to come to that awareness. Yeah. If you hadn't done it, you might have never come to meditation. It's probably true. I mean, it really opened my eyes about some things. And uh, when when it was done, it was done. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good attitude in general in life, isn't it? To kind of see the past as having been what it was supposed to be because it brought you to the present. Absolutely. And some, some teachers like Gurdjieff, he actually even used to make his disciples drink uh-huh. till they fall into the, the unconscious. They couldn't drink anymore. He, he used to make them eat till they can't eat anymore so that those things that are hidden in their unconscious can quickly surface mm. and he would see what is what is really hiding because we hide so much stuff in our unconscious and once th- those things are seen come to consciousness then you can easily see them transform them and move through them so this is exactly what my, me- my method does too without having to you know uh, get a person Um, one thing I've observed is and and, you know is that of the several world famous great masters that I have come in contact with um, they're still human beings very much you know I mean they still have human frailties at least from my point of view um, you know which might be perceived which critics might jump on as you know um points of contention that well they're phonies or they're uh you know they're really not all they're cracked up to be and so on but i don't know i've kind of learned to be forgiving of those things and and to appreciate uh to you know to take what you need and leave the rest and to appreciate the the great gifts and and blessings that they've bestowed on my life and on on the world um do you kind of feel that way or do you look back on osho as having been infallible and beyond reproach in all respects and so on. In the, the, the first thing that popped to my mind, there was a question asked of Alan Watts. And Alan Watts, is, you know, he's an American. Sure. He, he used that. Uh, and the question was, you say that you're enlightened and you're still drinking. How is that possible? And he said, Yes, but I drink in an enlightened way. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so what what it is is, of course, a person is still a person. The the personality is still there. 
the, the main difference is that you're not identified with it. You're not so, identified with it. That's all there is, because learning does not stop. If somebody's become enlightened, doesn't mean they stop learning. Right. And or, or possibly making mistakes and learning from those. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean that that suddenly they're not a human human being anymore. Right. Because they're still a human being. They still have their needs. They still have to eat. They still have to go to the bathroom. They still have to, you know, those things don't change. And what we bring in terms of the, the personalities that we bring into this life and uh, adopt from our parents, those things don't change. Right. So. Some things seem to change. I mean, you can really, your personality can really get quite transformed by a spiritual awakening, but maybe some things don't change. Some things don't change because they're just in, in, built in in your body. They're in the DNA. Mm-hmm. But what changes is your perception of reality, your perception of people. What changes is that you stop judging. Mm. You stop criticizing. What changes is that you become compassionate and understanding. What changes is that you understand what's happening to this, uh, this person is also happening to me. You understand that the duality is there. I live in the world of duality, but I'm not of the world. So this is the saying, I'm in the world, but not of the world. Right. What changes? Jesus said that. That's right. So this is, this is all about a perception. So nothing really in life um, is separate and if the, the sun is shining, obviously, you feel more energized and, and you feel, I can go out and I, can, I feel more happy being in, in my form. And when it's cold, in my case, I don't like rain anymore because my body's getting old and I need a sunny environment. So you realize, okay, I need to change an environment. So, and yes, what, what are the frailties? What are the frailties? When we judge and say it's a frailty, then we're judging and we're separating. Mm. Well, there is a tendency for people to kind of idealize their teacher, you know, put them up on a pedestal. And in some cases, there's a tendency for teachers to encourage that or to try to hide their warts, you know, um, and portray themselves as being some glorious, perfect thing. Then that teacher is still um, hasn't transcended the ego. Because, you know, if I was lost, I was just recently in Minneapolis doing a workshop and somebody, somebody was giving me compliments and it doesn't touch me because you might be giving me compliments one moment and you might turn around and start judging me the next moment. I know human nature. So nothing really, I don't get affected by either judgment, criticism or by compliment. Would you say that on, on some level, on a more superficial level, uh, as Mata, if someone is yelling and swearing at you, that's unpleasant, and if someone is praising you, that's pleasant. But on a deeper level, it doesn't matter one way or the other. Would, would that be a fair assessment? That, that, that's right, I'm, obviously. And, and then I have a choice. If somebody's attacking, then I have a choice to say, well, sorry, this is not allowed. Yeah, or I'm out of here, or <laughs> whatever, you're out of here. <laughs> exactly. So, and and if, if obviously if somebody's more pleasant then they're open because how can you as a teacher share something if somebody's closed and is attacking you it's impossible right. for right. for sharing to happen and it's not 
happened to me many times. I would get, I, I'm doing a talk and I would get people sitting right in front of me. A few, some, some person is completely open and listening and absorbing what I'm saying. And another person is sitting there in judgment in everything I say. So when I look at a person who is open, new things come out of my mouth and I can talk, you know, things that I would have not talked normally. And the person who is closed, I just, nothing goes. Energy doesn't move. So there's nothing I have to say. I cannot say anything. It's very true. There's a saying that a teacher is like a reservoir and you can put a little drinking straw up to a reservoir not much is going to come through or you could put a great big pipe and a lot is going to come through so it's the receptivity of the student that determines what the teacher is actually going to be able to say and do yeah. so if you had to boil the definition of enlightenment down to one thing would it be what you said a minute ago that it's freedom from identification is that, is that the kind of the, the, the essential characteristic of it well that's that's one of the characteristics, absolutely. Um, the, the term enlightenment was coined by the Buddha. And the reason he called it enlightenment, because his experience was that his whole body turned into light. Hmm. That was exactly my experience. Where When you were 33. Yes, when yeah. the body turned into light. And in that experience, realization that the whole universe is made of joy. And once you realize that the universe is made of joy and joy which is arises out of creation, then you understand that everything in the universe that has a material form has arisen out of that joy of creation. And, and then you realize on a smaller scale that you are the universe who is also creating moment to moment. And the moment you stop creating, then you become like a black hole. But nothing happens, nothing moves, nothing's seen. And light is, is, is arises out of creation. So, so in that creation, in that joy, there's also light and there's also consciousness. So when you had that experience when you were 33, um, was that a watershed moment uh, which things were never the same since? Um, or did it kind of fade and, and get back to normalcy again? Like any, any other experience, that experience also fades. What does not fade is consciousness. So once you become conscious of something, experience allows you to have an awareness of something. So once you become aware and conscious of whatever you're becoming aware of, that never fades. So since that experience at the age of 33, there has been a a level or a degree of consciousness which wasn't there before and, and that has not faded since then. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I, I, in your book, when you mentioned when you had that experience, um, you began to find that consciousness was awake even while you were asleep. So it was 24 hours a day. Did that fade or is that still a characteristic of your experience? It's, it's still there. There's an awareness in, in my sleep that I'm aware. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware in my sleep, and and then there is the the alpha sleep that we, that we come to once in a while, the the, the deep sleep. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha described that Buddha described nirvana as that state of deep sleep, where suddenly there is nothing, not even consciousness. So so now when you're in lighter stages of sleep, you have the inner awareness, but when you go into the deepest stages of sleep then it's just 
nothing. That, that there's nobody experiencing or being, yeah, there's nothing. Okay. I read in a, uh, the reason I bring this up is that a number of people have asked me to, to ask my guests this question because there's a certain school of thought that uh, maintaining inner awareness during sleep is the acid test of awakening or enlightenment, you know, and that a person might think they're awake, but if they conk out totally when they're asleep, then then there's something yet to be developed. Um, so that's why I brought it up. And I, I read an interesting account recently by a, a saint who um, lived in Rishikesh named Tatwala Baba, and someone asked him how if he slept, you know, and he said, what would happen to the universe if I slept? Uh, in other words, he was identifying with that sort of universal consciousness, and w which is the foundation of the universe, you know, which you were referring to a minute ago as everything arises out of that joyful state so he identified with that so so completely that and the implication was that no he even that that awareness of that wasn't lost during his deepest sleep at least that was my interpretation of it that's correct the awareness of the universe that alpha sleep where there's nothing happening no conscious like the awareness of i'm conscious that i'm sleeping you need the state of the deeper state where nothing happens in order for your body to rejuvenate. Otherwise, you cannot rejuvenate. Right. Survive. I, I, I have a, an interesting story about that. Sure, please. I was driving back. Uh, well, there were four of us in a van, and we were driving back from Oregon back to Montreal, and we were passing through Chicago, and it was wintertime. And... Um, as we're going on a highway, three o'clock in the morning, so the two of us were sleeping on the back um, in the van, and um, because it was converted, like you can actually lay down to sleep. And two people were driving, and um, suddenly in my sleep, I became aware that there was a dangerous situation, and I might be dying. The driver was falling asleep, or something. The, what had happened? So I'm asleep. The person next to me is asleep, and what was happening, they hit black eyes, and they turned. In that moment of their turning, and they're going down the ditch, I suddenly became aware death might happen. And obviously, I wasn't awake. I didn't see nothing that happened. And, and as I was becoming aware, I felt, okay, let me now let me start accepting death, because it might happen. And as I'm accepting death, the person next to me started screaming. He was asleep too. Huh. And he just started screaming, ah, ah, ah. And as he's screaming, as the, the van going down the ditch, I'm, I'm saying to him, it's like, stop shouting, you're disturbing my acceptance of death. <laughs> All this is happening without words. Oh, and I see. Asleep. Ah. And as the van went down, it was maybe, you know, quite a deep ditch that we went into. And so it went down and it stopped. As it stopped, that's when we came, you know, we woke up in a way. Well, I was awake in a sense. But then the man was still screaming. And later on, we realized that when he was a child, his mother had a car accident. Oh. And... That memory was being triggered for him. Interesting. He was screaming. And for me, I'm just accepting my death. And the interesting thing is once one person is in that state of calmness, 
somehow things work. <laughs> and what happened? We just went, went, didn't even wait there for five minutes. There was a, a police car and there was a tow truck pulling another car about 50 meters away the, out of the ditch. So we were back on the road in no time. <laughs> That's great. Good thing you lived. Um, this leads into a discussion of witnessing, I think, because you talk a lot about witnessing, and I want to understand more clearly what you mean by it. Um, I have my own concepts about it from my own learning and experience, but I want to make sure we're on the same page, and maybe we can just explore. Like one question I might have to start with is, do you see there that there are sort of degrees or levels of witnessing. Um, there could be kind of a little bit of witnessing and then deeper witnessing and so on. Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's riff on that a little bit. Well, witnessing is something that initially when a person starts meditating, they have no idea what witnessing is because they haven't been able to disidentify with anything. They're just trying to watch their breath. Many times people even go... The, the, the question is, well, how do I watch my breath? So once they start watching their breath, once they start seeing some the breath coming in and out, which is the, the key in meditation, then there is a, a, there, the moment comes where you start suddenly, you jump out of you thinking that, that I am my thoughts. When you can see a thought, you can see a breath, you can, you can see it's happening on its own, then your witnessing starts strengthening. It, you start cultivating the witness by watching. So as you watch, as you observe, the more you observe, the more you watch, the more distance is created between you, the witness, and what you're observing. And in that distance, the distance becomes bigger as the witness becomes stronger. That's why meditation has to be a regular practice. And if it's done only once here and once there, it's hard to create that um, environment where you can cultivate and strengthen your witness. And it has to be strong enough where you can actually witness any situation. Because if you're practicing witnessing, like there is a story with, uh, with Wallace Black Elk. And uh, the story is when he was uh, out in the mountains trying to red rock for his pipe, suddenly he saw a rattlesnake, a big rattlesnake, and the snake. So he knew if he, if he, right, right there by his foot, and he knew if he makes a move, he might get bitten. So that's the end of his life. So he stopped and he froze and he moved. And in that time of, of not moving, the snake started climbing his leg, so climbed his leg, climbed up arm. His went around his neck and just stood there. So it could have just, you know, choked him to death if he squeezed himself, right? So he just waited and he watched. He wouldn't move. And in that state of being a warrior, you have to be a warrior for that to happen. Then the snake suddenly uncoiled himself and went out through the other arm, out through the leg, and it's just left. Mm. So this to tell you that fear debilitates. So when we're fear, fear, we get attacked. This is how animals attack if you're afraid. If you look at cheetahs, cheetahs run 
right, after their prey. The moment the prey turns, turns around and goes against the cheetah, faces the cheetah, cheetah runs away. <laughs> yeah. You, you see? So uh, fear, and, and in human life, is the same thing. We get manipulated because we're afraid. The moment we stop being afraid, we cannot be manipulated. Of course, some fear is very visceral and, and instinctive. I mean, if you were to put me in a cage with a hungry lion, I don't think I would be free from fear. I would, you know, probably my heart would beat hard and I would, you know, I wouldn't just, it wouldn't be like I was sitting there reading a book or something. There would be a very different physiological reaction. The body has a built-in fear, that's right. But then your consciousness supersedes that. And this is exactly the fear that we need to feel we need to go through for the experience of enlightenment to happen. We need to transcend the fear that is inbuilt in the body. That's instinctual fear. Yeah. So I imagine if I were in a cage with a hungry lion, there would be the fear, but you know, there would be a, a degree of witnessing which wouldn't be touched by the fear, based on my general experience in life, um, and you know, which was would be a heck of a lot more than it would have been 40 years ago if I were in a similar circumstance because there hadn't been much of a witness developed. You know, it's not, it's not any different from when, when uh, an, in native tradition, when you're hunting an animal, <clears throat> the animal knows in some, at some point, the animal knows that I'm going to be killed and there's a sense of surrender. Aha, uh-huh, yeah. Because there's a knowingness that surrendering circumstances and and there's a knowingness that I'm not necessarily giving my body for somebody else to survive but there's a knowingness of that mm. and in that state there's no trauma right I see so coming back to witnessing again um Witnessing the very word implies a, a duality or separation. S- something over here is witnessing something over there. You know, there's an observer and an observed. So, uh, what is the observer in witnessing as you define it? What, what is the component in the personality or whatever that witnesses? It's your consciousness that's witnessing it. And once you witness something as separate from you, and as J. Krishnamurti said, the observer becomes the observed and realize that it's not separate any longer. That's where you transcend any kind of duality. So when you, for instance, are aware during sleep, that you could say is a form of witnessing because consciousness is awake to itself even though the body is asleep. That's right. right. That's okay. right. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much my understanding of it. Because um, sometimes witnessing, you know, and that's not volitional. I mean, you're not trying to do anything while you're asleep to make that happen. It's just happening spontaneously. It's happening spontaneously because you've cultivated enough witness within you to watch yeah. what's happening. Right. Um, would you agree with this? That you know, if you if you if we think of the full range of creation, there's sort of the absolute pure consciousness, and then there's all the relative phenomenon. And if you could, oh, oh, and there's a disti- uh, from one at one level of appreciation, there's a distinction between those. One is non-changing and and silent, and the other is active and changing. And if you could open your awareness to that full range, there's naturally going to be witnessing because you're going to incorporate within your experience the distinction between those two fields. Would you, would you, is that, uh, does that jibe with your experience? 
The witnessing is not naturally happening. You need to cultivate it. You need to cultivate Exactly. I totally agree. Uh, the vast majority of people have not cultivated it. But when you when you have, it's not something like you have to pay attention to all day long. It's just spontaneous. That is, And that's the goal. The goal is for you to actually be in a witnessing state 24, hour, 24 hours a day. Exactly. Good. Well, this might be a good segue into talking about the Dalian method because we're talking about having to cultivate it. And that seems, from what I understand, that is the primary thing you've come up with for helping people cultivate this. Um, so what is it? Tell us about it. Well, the method does more than just cultivate a witness. First okay. of all, in order to cultivate the witness, we need to see where the identifications are. Uh-huh. And one easy way, the method basically, um, it, it arose not because I was looking to create any method. It just happened on its own, spontaneously. And um, I did I did take an energy healing course, um, a, a two weeks course. This was in 1995, and in that course I became um, I reconnected with the ability I had as a child to read thought forms in the energy. Mm. So, and what that means is that the body, the energy, is imprinted with many repressed thoughts, beliefs, conditionings, which prevent from our witnessing or disidentification from happening. So that's like clouds that cover the sun. They keep us bound or identified. Exactly. And not only that, um, as I started exploring this gift and uh, this method of healing, I realized that it was not complete. And then I started exploring how, how can I make this? in a way more complete in a sense that go into the problem, the cause of the problem, because there's so many layers to it till we get there, um, get, go straight into the cause of the problem and release the or transform the belief and the imprint from the body cellular memory. So as I started using um, the known methods such as Gestalt and um, some some energy, you know, uh, such as um, counseling, talking about the energy or talking about what I see, I realized this is not enough. The person is not really getting it. Their consciousness is not coming coming on. The, and, and I could be talking and, uh, you know, for forever and very little change is going to happen. So I decided I'm going to ask the person to verbalize those thought forms that I was seeing, hearing in their energy. And the moment the person started doing that, verbalizing them out loud, suddenly I could see the energy started to move and other thought forms from the unconscious started coming up. And as I started helping them to verbalize those thought forms because all I was doing is just mirroring what I see and doing that through the whole body not just in local area immediately I was stunned to see that chronic pain was instantly disappearing permanently Mm -hmm. Um, illnesses asthma thyroid uh, Crohn's disease fibromyalgia 
many illnesses that I worked with that people came with were just disappearing within one or two sessions when all those thought forms were being released. But what was happening more so? Once the beliefs were being released, then consciousness would come in and would see it as separate. So the identification would be broken. Uh And in that breaking of identification, people would actually have experiences of their true being, experiences of understanding that I'm not my body and I can never die, experiences of of actually uh, some people were experiencing things that they wouldn't they weren't able to experience after meditating for 20 years Mm. so it was so quick and it was so profound and it was healing the body not just a a healing method but it's a method of of transformation awakening of consciousness so then it took me probably a couple of years to experiment with many people and I was really my whole approach was how can I get directly into consciousness what are the steps how can I help the person um, move quickly without spending years and years and years on an issue and that's what I achieved to do with this method and of course Uh, that there's areas in the body that are absolutely important to work with which most of the time we work with in the wrong way such as um, the the third eye where the vision is such as the back of the head the top of the head the feet and all the chakra system so the, the whole body needs to be worked with and this is what the method does it works with the entire body so and of course, after some years, about 15 years after practicing it one-on-one, I decided that it was time to create a self-healing method. And yeah, I was going to ask whether this required your participation or whether you could somehow make people self-sufficient with it. Yeah, so this, this is exactly um, what was the next goal for me, how right. to create it in such a way that people can use it on their own without my participation because many many therapists were actually asking me to train them with the method mm-hmm. yoga teachers therapists that they counselors psychologists even and when i would look at their requests I, I i was cognizant that i can only train someone who has enough awareness within themselves that can recognize the difference between thought forms and consciousness and awareness because there's which that switches that you know when suddenly the person's consciousness comes in that you need to ground in the whole body so because of the limitations that if i had to train people i had to train first of all people to become conscious that's a long process then it was very clear i need to create a method or translate this into a self-healing version into a self-healing method and I experimented with this the past two and a half years and I was stunned at the results and so the second book which is almost ready to be published will come with self-healing CD and a DVD showing people how to do it on their own and the, the transformation is so instant and things that you could have never thought are possible to access you'll be able to access very quickly. That's great. Um, so 
maybe you could give us an example of a thought form. And, and I, as I was listening to many of your YouTube videos, you had a thing where people would dwell on a particular thing, like uh, I don't want to live or I'm afraid to die or something like that. And then they would do a fast pranayama kind of thing while they were saying that or, or thinking that. Uh, so is that part of the mechanics of, of this method? Um, so please elaborate on that. There's no pranayama whatsoever. Well, yeah, I heard them going, you know, fast breathing a lot. No, there's no fast breathing. It's probably they were feeling emotional and, and they were sort of maybe um, becoming, tears were coming maybe or something. But um, meth uses breathing, but not like a pranayama. Okay. Uh, it It uses the inhalation and exhalation in an equal um, length. So between inhalation, there's expression, and then there's exhalation. So exhalation is absolutely important in order for those thought forms to be released out of the body. Because with stopping the breathing is how we keep those thought forms in our body. But stopping the breathing is how we keep the fear. The moment we feel fear, we you stop. Go, <gasps> yeah. And what are we feeling fear about? We don't want to feel it, obviously. Something we're afraid of, we don't want to feel. We don't want to feel the fear. So the method will help you to start feeling the fear, understanding what is it that you're afraid of. And, and not only understand, but release it so that consciousness can simultaneously come in. So it could be any kind of fear is one thing, anger, people repress anger. Um, and through the method, when the method encourages them to express the anger that's hidden inside the body, then the conditioning comes in. Well, I can't say that, I can't do that. That's another layer where then you are witnessing and you're seeing that, aha, uh -huh, I have this conditioning that does not allow me to say I'm angry. So what do they do, punch a pillow or something? Or how do you get them to express the anger? <laughs> the anger through words. And yes, sometimes I want them to punch the pillow or, or uh, loosen up the body, absolutely. Because if it's deeply, deeply um, repressed, and not only deeply repressed, it's not repressed just once, it's repressed many times. So there's many layers of the same thought form repressed. Just expressing it once is not enough. And very recently, actually a, few, a couple of months ago, there was an article um, that I saw on internet that the UCLA, they did a research that if you express your fear out loud, it diminishes. Huh. So this is, uh, I, I discovered this in 1997 and working with it. And I'm very happy that finally science is starting to catch on. And... It, it's great, but that it's the first step, and the second step is going to be to see how this method can actually heal, help to heal the body, so you can save lots of money, you can save a lot of doctor's visits, you can save a lot of uh, counseling sessions, just by taking the responsibility to do something for yourself, because this is the most important thing. The person must be willing to take responsibility to do this work for themselves and not rely on somebody else to fix it for me. So let's say somebody is afraid of public speaking or they're afraid to fly on an airplane or something. Would that be a, 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 a typical case in point? And do, do those examples sort of uh, signify some, some deeper thing that you want to get down to and, and rectify with this method? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It works on anything, anything because there is a cause to why something exists. If somebody is afraid to fly, there is a cause. Why is somebody afraid to fly? Afraid of death, probably. Yeah. You know. or, or maybe in some past life they've had an accident and they've died in the airplane. I don't know. But they... Once they see that, and once they recognize that, oh, this is something that happened. Uh, for example, with my daughter, when she was pregnant the second time, um, she, she was really, there was something in her was very afraid. The first pregnancy she had, she had two-day two, um, labor, and it was very hard. The second pregnancy, she was really concerned, and there was fear. So when I worked with her with my method, what came up was that she's been a mother for many lifetimes, having many children, and she has died giving in childbirth. Mm-hmm. So there was this concern, and, and that's why she didn't quite want to have another child, so there was a resistance in her. And once she realized that this is the memory that was still carrying in her body, and that's why the first um, childbirth was difficult because there was a resistance in her body because she knew she had died in childbirth. And what, what happened the first time, immediately she went into hemorrhaging. The 48-hour the, the, the uh, delivery was hemorrhaging? That's right. So yeah. she, she delivered the baby in a um, sort of like a home, semi-home environment. Mm. And then the nurse left and I noticed that she's hemorrhaging, so so then they had to rush back in to take care of her, but she would have died just repeating the same pattern. Same pattern, yeah. And then the se- that's why the second childbirth, when we worked with it, the first time I didn't know, the second time when I worked with her, her, her second delivery was just a, a very easy, very quick, and no problems because we went through that memory, we cleared the memory from her body, and she came to an awareness that it does not have to repeat itself. So then it seems like there are two components. One is gaining the ability to recognize the root cause of a particular fear or, or problem or something, is somehow tuning into that at a deeper level. And the second thing is to actually neutralize or, or resolve it. Um, can you say a bit about how both of those steps are accomplished? Well, they're accomplished through the system, as, as I just described, that, that works with releasing those beliefs and thought forms from the, inner, from the body, um, entire body, until consciousness comes in. So it uses verbal expression and it uses uh, inhalation and exhalation. And, and, and it's, it's systematic because we need to go up and down through different parts of the body while we're working with the system through the session. Okay. And so it's not really something that can be taught in the context of an interview. It really, one has to really sit down and do it as a, a focused practice, for, and it might take an hour or something like that to do or whatever. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, and if a per- so, if a person wants to explore that, they can get your new book when it comes out, or they could even get in touch with you now and and uh, do it somehow. At, at the moment, I'm still doing private sessions by phone or in person. Mm-hmm. And once the book is out, I'm going to be. Uh, I do offer retreats and seminars. There's one in San Francisco coming up uh, in February. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it's a Joshua Tree Retreat. Seven. Uh-huh. 
And we're going to be using the self-healing method there along with active meditations. And I'll be doing seminars once the book comes out and eventually uh, training other facilitators to help others uh, learn how to use the method. But basically, once you learn it once with me, then you can do it on your own using the book and the CD. Good. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I have a respect for people that, I mean, maybe it's a personal bias because I've always been a practice kind of guy, but I have a respect for people who somehow distill some kind of practical thing that people can actually do to realize or to benefit, you know, because there are a lot of people who just kind of talk and others listen and there seems to be a disconnect you know you can talk from your level of consciousness somebody else can listen from theirs and and never the twain shall meet but if if you can come up with a, a very practical method to actually achieve progress toward that realization it's it's great and it's absolutely necessary and you know my experience is only masters can do that because there's a difference between a master and an an enlightened teacher both could be enlightened and the difference is that the master brings tools and the teacher teaches Buddha is a master who brought the tool Vipassana and many people became enlightened because of that tool Osho brought tools such as active meditations and many people became enlightened one of them is myself (laughs) dynamic kundalini and my contribution is this method. And yes, I'm, I'm very grateful for you to say that because that's absolutely true. And it's an important point for any seeker to be mindful that listening is one thing, but you actually need to do something. You cannot, you cannot uh, people think, oh, if I go sit and listen, it will rub off. Well, it won't because it's not going to help you discover who you are. Yeah, you might get a bit of an energy buzz, but in terms of real deep permanent transformation, it doesn't really seem to happen that often, you know? It's um, very... Yeah. It's an interesting distinction you draw between masters, teachers and masters. The, the Sanskrit word rishi or maharishi you know, usually means that. A rishi might have all sorts of cognitions, but a maharishi is somebody who can, like Ram, Ramana Maharishi, somebody who can, you know, impart his own experience through some kind of methodology that's effective for people. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> hmm. Okay, good. Um, I'm sure that you know we could spend another two hours <laughs> going into all kinds of different chapters in your book. There's all sorts of interesting stuff about you know, chakras and seven bodies and all sorts of things. Um, we, we may have reached the limit of people's uh, attention span, but uh, is there anything that you feel like you know we've glossed over or or missed entirely that you want to just touch on before we wrap it up? Well, I think we did pretty well. We touched on many, many uh, important um, areas. And again, the the most important thing I'd like to say, if I was to to, um, describe what kind of a teacher I was, is I'm basically a teacher of responsibility. People need to take responsibility for their own awakening. Tools are there, but you still need to use them. It's a good point. Nobody's going to do it for you. That's right. Nobody's going to smack you in the forehead and <laughs> you're going to realize. Because all I can do is create an environment and teach you the tools, but then again, you have to do it. 
that's the case with any any kind of a um, master, you know, quote unquote. What what the master does basically knows what are what is it that you specifically need as an individual. What where are your blocks? So it's just sort of bringing a torch on those areas. That's all. So uh, which is important you know, to bring awareness to those areas, help you see what you're not seeing, but then you still need to do the work. Yeah. Seek and you shall find. And it's good for people to hear that because I think, you know, some people, you know, I get emails from people a lot because I do these interviews, and, and sometimes people sound discouraged, like, oh, you know, nothing, it's never, never going to happen for me. I've been at the, you know, kind of seeking for so long. and not, But there, there are teachers out there, techniques out there, and it's just a matter of finding what works for you. And, and usually, you know, people find if they, if, like you were saying much earlier in the interview, if a person is sincere and diligent and motivated, God is going to come to their rescue. You know, one thing is going to lead to the next, and they're going to find the thing that works for them. But you have to have that sincere interest and, and motivation. Exactly, and, and that's exactly what's happening in my, in my environment is people who are finding me are people who have done all sorts of work and listening, reading, and uh, I love it because they have all the preparation work, they have all the understanding, all they need now is the practical work, and um, I'm a practical teacher, so I love when people come already with that background, and everybody says, well, how do they find me? They find me by accident. There's no accident because, like you say, when you're ready, what you need is, uh, appears. So definitely, and and I think lots of people are ready. Just like you say, many people have done a lot of work, mm-hmm. and they they're they're at a point of recognizing I cannot do it with my mind alone. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the whole planet is waking up. Compare compare our current age to, like, say, the 1950s or something. You know. Uh, Ozzy and Harriet. I mean, there's a, a much greater um, quickening taking place in, in world consciousness. Yes, and uh, well, thanks to people like you who's bringing, you know, a lot of the, the, the teachers and their words out. So, so what a beautiful platform you created. Oh, thanks. I'm holding up my little stick. <laughs> that, that, that's a reference to a story in the, from the Vedas where Indra was. Uh, jealous of some village because they worshipped Krishna and so he, he caused this huge deluge to, to come down and it was drowning out the village so the people all cried out to Krishna and Krishna came and picked up a mountain held it over the village with one hand and everybody came and said oh he, he can't hold up that mountain all by himself so they all grabbed sticks to try to help hold up the mountain but of course it wasn't really their sticks that were holding it up it was Krishna so you know we're, I'm holding up my stick I'm, I appear to be doing this thing but it's really a larger kind of uh, an intelligence that's enabling this to take place. Absolutely, yeah. And we're all we're just playing it in the big ocean, like orchestra. Yeah, lots of fun. Okay, so uh, let me make a couple of concluding remarks. Um, I've been speaking with Eliza Mata Dalian, uh, who lives in Toronto, in Vancouver, but who gets around, uh, does sessions still personally by phone uh, and and in person, maybe Skype. I don't know. Um, and you also, uh, as you said, uh, go about and give um, retreats and, and you know, courses, whatever you call them. You'll be doing a couple in California, it sounds like, in the near future. 
Uh, I'll be linking to your website from batgap.com and also linking to your book on Amazon so people can go there directly and check it out. And uh, this is part of an ongoing series of interviews, which I've been doing for almost three years now, which I intend to do as long as I can speak and think, <laughs> as far as I can tell. It's great fun. Um, I, in fact, I, I'm hoping to kind of have it morph into a full-time profession, and that's why I have a donate button on my site. It sort of helps to facilitate that possibility. Um, if people would like to be notified every time a new interview is posted, you can either subscribe to the YouTube feed or you can go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and there's a little subscription button where you can fill out a brief form and you'll just get an email once a week telling you when a new interview has been put up. There's also a discussion group there that springs up around each interview, sometimes gets very lively and in-depth. Um, so if you find that points in this discussion interested you and you want to talk about them with others, um, go ahead and chime in there. And um, sometimes even the teachers whom I've interviewed have a chance to come in and answer a question or two. Uh, this also exists as an audio podcast. Uh, if you'd like to listen to while you're commuting or riding your horse or hiking in the Himalayas, both of those examples are things that people have told me they've they've done while listening to this. Uh, so you can you'll see a link there to sign up for the uh, the iPod uh, podcast. So great, thank you, Mata. Um, sorry for that lengthy conclusion, but I always like to cover those points. No, that's, that's my pleasure. And uh, one, one uh, thing I'd like to mention alongside the book, there's also the No Yes Meditation, which is a practical tool. That's on your website. That's on my website, and it's also on Amazon. So you mentioned Amazon, and you might want to link into that one as well. I will. What is that, a book or a CD or what? It's a CD, and um, it's uh, it's a med an active meditation, and it helps to practically come th through those layers as we described, let them surface and be released, and for a shift of consciousness to happen uh, very quickly. And the CD comes with um, this specific music that's been designed for for the section where we say no for half an hour, and I worked with the musician to create that music so that it triggers those points and wakes up the areas that's been repressed and then there's a period of silence and a period of different kind of music where you could say yes and dance and really feel that authentic yes within and if if um, I think uh, if you haven't uh, had experience of that we should probably send you one so you can have an experience of it as well and sure. there's um, uh, a video clip that just went on uh, YouTube yesterday mm -hmm. with a few people talking about it. So I, we can send you that link as well. Yeah, do. And, and I'll link to that uh, from backgap.com. So if each time I do one of these interviews, in case somebody happens to be listening on YouTube and they haven't seen this, uh, I, they have their own page on backgap.com where there's a whole bio of them and links to the various things that we want to link to. You can't really do that so easily on YouTube, but I can do it on my own blog. So those will all be there. Okay, wonderful. Great. Uh, great chatting with you. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Nice. We'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Namaste. Hey. Okay.